This is the Martial Arts Lifestyle Podcast, where we have conversations with everyday martial artists about their histories and how martial arts influence their daily lives. You are listening to the abbreviated version of this podcast, which is the first 20 minutes or so of the show. Please consider supporting the show by subscribing on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash M-A-L-M-A-G. And for about the price of one coffee shop coffee per month, you can get access to four new podcasts each month one week before their YouTube release dates. You also have access to all of our existing shows, which at this point is about 100 hours of shows for you to enjoy. Individual shows can be purchased at our Gumroad page. That is malmag.gumroad.com. This week I get on Zoom with Michelle Manu who is a practitioner of a very rare martial art from Hawaii called Lua. We talk about her introduction into that martial art and some of her film work experience. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Martial Arts Lifestyle Podcast. And we're rolling here in Season 2, and I've Got a nice young lady that I met a while back. I, I knew her through reputation, and then we kind of met through mutual students. And this is a very accomplished person. I'm very happy to have her on the podcast. She's not only got some high ranks in martial arts, but she's very uh, got some high ranks in education as well. So it's going to be a very fascinating person for you all to meet if you're not familiar with her already, this is Michelle Manu, and she is a amazing martial arts practitioner, uh, bringing us some martial arts from, from Hawaii, you know, things that I think a lot of people don't really know about. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been kind of looking forward to chatting with you for a while. Um, when we met, we got to sort of chat over an informal dinner with a, a mutual student, and I think we had a really good time at that. It was some pretty amazing uh, conversation some really good food actually too yes <laughs> very good <laughs> she's an amazing cook yes indeed so uh usually the show is is, is about you so we're gonna we'll just jump into your superhero origin story here how did you get involved in martial arts uh well i started uh, at nine years nine years old so it will be uh yeah an anniversary next year of yeah several 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 decades um <laughs> Yeah, so I got started uh, when I was nine years old and um, just kept training. I mean, there were obviously a couple of years where I didn't, where I, uh, I still, even though I moved to Chicago to um, tour the Midwest, I still was training, but not in the original art I started with. And then when I returned back from touring, I found my late teacher and then I was with him for 24 years before he left us about four years ago. And um, yeah, I started teaching uh, reluctantly in 2010 with permission from my teacher. And uh, I've learned my own style and my own way. And I think I started teaching regularly in 2014. And so we're at the 10 year mark of being all over the world. And it's been an amazing, amazing experience. Wow, that's great. That's funny. Mm -hmm. I would have no idea that you really kind of got into the teaching aspect of it relatively recently. I mean, as far as history is kind of concerned, that's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And relate to the reluctant thing. I mean, I always shared martial arts. You know, I've been in for about 41 years or so at this point. 
And I always was happy to share things, but I never thought of like formally teaching either. And the people that saw that in me was Larry Hartzell and Dan and Asanto. They said, Hey, uh-huh. you know, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I kind of trust these guys. Maybe there's something there and they were right. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed teaching. So there's something about that, that, that they, they saw that I didn't see. I think that's remarkable because um, we weren't allowed to teach. We, we had to have permission. Um, so I think maybe Alohe saw promise in some of us. Um, but, you know, because just because someone is a, a tremendous practitioner doesn't make them a good teacher. And even if they are an amazing practitioner and can do some amazing superhuman things, um, doesn't mean that they can actually assist others of all different sizes with both genders um, in how to do the exact same technique or be as effective. So it takes time. You know, I, you probably can relate, you know, who you were when you first started teaching and who you are now. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so true. Now, Mm -hmm. did you start in Lua? Was that your first art? No, I started in uh, one art. And then when I moved to Chicago, I trained in other arts. And then when I found my teacher, then I was strictly Lua. He reprogrammed everything I had learned. Um, and yeah, that's all I speak now. And this is why I don't train other arts because I would dilute what I've learned. Um, I know it's like in fashion to uh, train in multiple arts. And I think it's wonderful because, you know, each one of us has our own journey. If that's good for someone, then so be it external, internal martial arts, whatever it may be. (laughs) Um, but for me, I think as the only female teacher in the public, of this art. Um, and it was not just a martial art, it's a warrior cultural practice. There was a lot more that went into it. Um, I think I, I, I have a duty, but that doesn't mean I don't know what, how others uh, attack or um, counter. I, I do pay attention. Uh, so, Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Are, are you originally from Hawaii or, or where are you originally from? My father, um, but I did, my father's originally from Hawaii. Uh, my mother is Scandinavian from the continent. <laughs> and wow. so it's a mixture. I, I also have some Asian on my father's side as well as English. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, they, they met uh, when my father left Hawaii Island. Um, he met my mom, a lot of Scandinavians out there back in that day. And he met mm-hmm. her in Chicago. Uh, he went uh, to school there, college. And yeah, they married and had five kids. And, uh, but before the rest of my siblings came, we did move back, um, before I turned one and we stayed there for a while, uh, and then returned back to Southern California. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I get the, the feeling. How did you find Chicago? I grew up in Illinois myself. I was born here in California, but I grew up in Illinois. So yeah, (laughs) that's like my my brothers were born in California and they were raised in Illinois. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, kindred spirit states in a way, because when I find people my age that are native from at least Southern California, I find them to be very similar uh, in personality and value systems to me. You know, it's, you know, there's things to be said about California and they say, all oh, people are flaky and, what have you? And I said, well, yeah, there's a lot of transients. And I think you're also talking about potential transients, not necessarily. People from, yeah, exactly. Way, especially the ones that are, say, Gen X or, or <laughs> you know, in there. Because, yes, yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, it, it it's very similar. When I discuss, you know, like growing up with with a couple of my friends that grew up here that, you know, they went to the beach. I went to the lake, you know, and it was like a lot of the same music. And the they same- went to 
forest, you went to the forest preserves, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it wasn't that much different. You know, I just, it doesn't sound like, you know, the, the two really good friends I think of from here that are right at my age, their whole growing up seems almost the same as mine. So it's Gen X. I mean, (laughs) culture. (laughs) we were raised. Exactly. Exactly. So this is interesting. How did you discover uh, Lua then? Because this is a very, not only rare art, but it's kind of secretive. I mean, I think you're kind of alluding to that a little bit. Uh, well, you know, that's why I didn't think I actually happened upon it. Um, so I, I, when I returned from touring, um, you know, being front and center for Hula, um, I had my daughter, I, I married and had my daughter. I married a Chicago guy. <laughs> I'm divorced a Chicago guy, but nonetheless, I married a Chicago guy. <laughs> and um, I had my daughter in Chicago and then we moved back to Southern California. And when I returned, um, I knew that it was time to get back into con, uh, con- like combat. Well, instead of just being front and center with, you know, Hula and Lua have obviously become more dear and intimate with me over the years and how they are the same. Uh, just it's the intention of the practitioner that shows that energy and and how but nonetheless uh, the lua was hidden within the hula after it was publicly banned but I didn't know all of this at the time I I just knew it was time to get back into contact with others literally full contact and so I went through the yellow pages because this was before the internet and I (laughs) thought we'll see the ages of our listeners at this point yeah well, you know, it's funny because I just saw today that the number one Google search for me right now is Michelle Manu age. So now I'm giving it away. Oh, oh. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. And so I, I called and um, inquired and I found out that he doesn't teach women for whatever reason. And um, it took numerous efforts uh, and phone calls to try to get through to him. And I, I finally uh, received a call back. And he invited me to watch a class and I went and um, signed the paperwork and showed up the next morning for training. And my life has never been the same. So um, that is how I found my teacher. I did not believe it was Lua. I thought maybe it was like an offshoot or someone just calling it Lua, but it's the real deal. And he's third generation uh, expert master, if you will, in his lineage, I'm sure far more than I'm aware of. But right now I know he's third generation. And so this is a family blood lineage. It's not something that is compilated from or compiled from um, research. Uh, uh, you know, it's not the the know about or the know, it's actually the become and be. Uh, it's through, you know, tremendous training um, and uh, the way the warriors used to train. But my, my teacher uh, is interesting because, you know, obviously the warrior art changed as the uh, society changed pre-contact, post-contact with uh, settlers and, um, you know, missionaries. And so, and war, obviously, and our king, Kamehameha I, loved loved uh, metal weapons, so eventually it incorporated uh, some of the metal weapons in his effort, uh, which he was successful in uniting all the islands. Um, so my teacher comes from that era, where it was not about possibly holistic living, it was about maximum kills. And so my training is very much focused on uh, effectiveness, which I'm very grateful for. Mm. Uh, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting because I think when people think of of Lua and then they say it's part of, or that Hula's part of it, so then you're thinking of 
mainly women doing a dance. And then you're saying that that it was restricted as far as training women? Never. No, uh, I think uh, that's a misnomer. It's almost like uh, in the culture where they say women are not allowed to eat these certain foods. They It was part of the kapu system. It was the code of conduct. And in, in today's world, kapu means forbidden. But in ancient times, it's sacred. And when you insert that meaning into all these things that women aren't allowed to do is because we were set aside and we were sacred. We were seen as most indigenous cultures as having one foot on the physical and one foot up in, in the heavens, right? in the in po. And so men were actually the primary hula dancers because at certain heiau temples to try to invoke um, spiritual understanding and spiritual gifts, whereas women were seen and believed to have not have to do that. So in pre-contact times, men were mostly the hula dancers. Well, that's pretty interesting. So the, the idea is that <sighs> women are, yeah, naturally more advanced than men already. <laughs> uh, in the spiritual realm, you know, and yeah. and their first nature um, and religion being, well, their first religion being that of connectivity with, with all things and, and all living things, nature, it would make sense that the men, they were in charge of, uh, they had rules and, and, and everyone well, most abided by them, where men were very uh, terrestrial. They, they handled things on ground where women were more celestial. Um, they were believed to obviously birth uh, unseen into the scene and return. Their jobs also included burial and preparing the body uh, to return back to uh, Honua, Haumea, the Mother Earth, as well as return the spirit back to Po. So this was part of their duties. Uh, well, men had other terrestrial duties. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it's a lot of the, and I'm finding that, especially with island cultures, because they're probably closer to more like tribal cultures, which is obviously how human yeah. beings lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Before, yeah, we discovered this, or created this civilization thing about 15,000 years ago. And I think with a lot of people who maybe don't study humanities seem to not understand is that like the first more uh, like religious things that we see in archaeology is that god was a woman not a man <laughs> <laughs> yeah the goddess was worshipped there was no such yeah. thing as and this goes back to the beginning of civilization there were temples erected and there was worship at the goddess temples and the women that were the priestesses um that also provided healing for everyone mostly men terrestrial duties that went to war, they would go to the temple and be healed in many different ways uh, before they returned to their families and society. So um, that, you know, I, a really great book is when God, when, uh, where, what is it called? It's by, it's when God was a woman by Merlin Stone. Um, oh. She did a lot of research in there about the way of the goddess and when she, when God was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, and and what's speaking of kind of like more of a, a female direction of it. So the the only Lua story I even really know, other than you know just hearing of the art, because uh, you know fortunately Guru Inosanto is one of those guys that talks about a lot of stuff, researches a lot of things, and so his Kempo teacher Ed Parker, apparently Ed Parker's aunt was a Lua practitioner, and put it on some loudmouth uncle at a dinner table one time apparently he was being somewhat abusive and she put him in some sort of nerve thing and it made him freeze and she lectured him and then 
made him normal again or something. And I guess Ed Parker begged this aunt to teach him. And she looked at him and said, you're six foot two and you, you have all this tempo. You don't need it. So I'll never teach you. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Part of the Ohana, they decide. <laughs> That's yes. pretty- Women were warriors. We were just used different ways. And we're finding out more and more um, about this. So uh, used mostly, uh, they used poison and they were um, used as assassins. And this is not anything that we haven't heard before from other cultures uh, because women obviously can get into spaces that normal male warriors cannot. Right. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) You know, uh, so I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, you were talking about weaponry a little bit. And uh, one of the things that's fascinated me by just the, the different press I've seen on you, different videos I've seen on you, is you've got a whole plethora of these different weapons I've never seen, and they look pretty wicked. <laughs> yeah, my, my teacher is uh, pretty remarkable with, uh, with his weapons making. Um, he would make a set for all of us as we reached a certain level. And it's interesting, you know, throughout your training, it really wasn't set up in levels. Um, he taught what he wanted to. If you missed a class, he missed it. There was no note taking, there was no filming, there was nothing. Um, you learned through uh, the language of retaining it in your muscle and in your body. And I have forgotten a lot because I should have um, written things down when I got back to my car. But I, you know, single mom, working multiple jobs and right. wanting to get home a 45 minute drive after a long day, I didn't make notes all the time. I have several, not nearly what I should. But the weaponry, he did incorporate all of the weaponry that we see in some of the other Lua lineages or that were used. Um, but he does have most of it. And he's also altered some of the pieces. And, you know, his father um, was a commoner from Kona and his favorite weapon was the long staff well, ko'o, ko'o, and, uh, or the long bow. So much so that his nickname was bow. And his mother was of royal blood from Kauai, uh, Vili Vili specifically. And her favorite weapon, right, being on the coast was the paddle. Um, oh. You know, uh, very interesting that they both had their their own proficiencies. Um, but yeah, the the weapons of the Kaivalulua they're pretty remarkable. And so now my students, I have actually separated, uh, created a curriculum and separated it into warrior levels. And at each level, you get ample time to learn each weapon. Um, so like myself, some people will ask, "What is you know what is your favorite weapon?" I actually, don't have one. I've had tremendous time with each one of them. And, and at one during that time, each one has become my favorite as I bonded with them. And, and, and the weapons are um, more than just wood. You don't throw them around. There's <laughs> respect. Like um, in ancient times, a warrior would most likely be proficient in one. They would have their weapon and they would give it a name and a place to sleep in the house and no one would touch it, but its owner uh, for practice or for war. And so it was, yeah, pretty special item <laughs> to the warriors. Yeah, I don't think that's changed. I think a lot of gun owners uh, name their guns as well. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I had never even thought of doing that. I, I you know, been around firearms since I was little, obviously, being a, a Midwestern boy. And yeah. we're going to a range with uh, a good dear friend of mine on the podcast way back when Atticus Toddy's instructor at the Academy. Uh, Native American background, Tim, but very, very, very good. 
uh, martial art and firearms instructor. And he's like, oh, well, what name have you given that? I'm like, what name? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you have to name your firearm because that way, you you know, you become one with it or, you know, you develop this relationship with it and it, it won't bite you. And I'm like, OK, well, you know, I've not even thought of it in that manner, but. So I've now given them all names, I guess. <laughs> I love that. Good. Uh, the same thing with someone telling me I had to name my car. I'm like, what? Okay. So my last two cars have had names too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine have had names too. <laughs> it's a Gen X thing, I think. Yeah, I think you know. To, but it, but it is kind of interesting. It's almost like um, it's almost like the the old religions that we're talking about, like animism. You know, where you're you're sort of um, giving everything a spirit of its yes. own. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, it does. And there's actually rituals that will, um, do on the wood, uh, especially if you're making it, but to prepare oneself first to cleanse oneself. Um, mm -hmm. and then also to cleanse the wood from any defilement, whether it's spiritual or human, and then you start to carve it. And then you start to work and fashion it into what it's supposed to be. And there's almost, if you're in tune, there's almost this cooperation between you and this living thing. Um, you get messages and you listen to it. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, part of the exactly. yeah, <laughs> I suppose mm -hmm. if you're hearing all kinds of other things and it's crazy, but just it, it, the metaphor of it and stuff, not, I don't know. It doesn't seem that crazy to me because the things like, you know, if you think, using wood for weapons um for philippine martial arts using rattan which is a, a live you know vine essentially as well so these things were living at one time themselves and you know what kind of consciousness or intelligence or whatever we want to assign to it i suppose is what we do but you know we're discovering all the all the time now what was it i read recently about how plants and trees can all communicate with each other and and about distress and all this other stuff. And you're like, well, maybe we got to start to be careful about what we call sentient and not anymore. It seems like if it's alive, it's sentient in some way. There you have <laughs> it. There's also recent uh, research that says that plants, if happy and healthy and hydrated, they will make a sound every hour. We may not be able to hear it, but other animals can, including the birds. And if this uh, a plant's clearly dying, dehydrated, not happy, um, or it's got some sort of infection, that it will make tremendous noise. We can't hear it, but the scientists have proven this now. So they also <laughs> will give alerts through sound, which we would never think to be true. It's fascinating. Yeah, I wish we could get an interpreter for that because I, I like keeping plants and I hate it when, uh, you know, when I'm doing a terrible job and I'm like, I water them regularly, but everyone I've got now seems to be doing fine. I'm looking outside, looking over here, going, they all seem to be good. Well, sometimes they don't need water. Sometimes we overdo it. We're Americans. Everything's got to be supersized, right. you know? Exactly. <laughs> what do you mean? It's sip? Here's a big gulp. Blah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's I love pretty... that. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> so when you uh teach when you bring students into to lua do you start them with weapons or with empty no. hand or both no it's all um actually they learn with hula converted into lua first oh um, that's they will not touch a weapon until warrior level three and i made exception there i really didn't want to put weapons into anyone's hands but for me it was very clear that 
And this concludes the abbreviated version of the podcast. Please consider supporting the program by going to www.patreon.com slash M-A-L-M-A-G and subscribing to the show. You can also purchase this individual episode or any individual episode at our Gumroad page. That's malmag.gumroad.com. Thank you for listening to this episode with Michelle Manu. Next week I connect to North Carolina and I talk to one of the first Jeet Kune Do students outside of the state of California, Dick Harrell. Our Malmag online store at martialartslifestylemagazine.com has a full selection of Timmy B's brand sticks for FMA and Krabiker Bong. Timmy B's brand now selling in Japan as well. Beautiful Timmy B's brand shirts and Dos Manos shirts are available with new t-shirt designs and more products coming soon. An online course in the Dos Manos method for FMA is available under the courses tab. More courses coming soon. Check out the places to train tab to find schools near you and click on the events calendar page to see what seminars and events are happening all around the world. And of course, visit our main page for articles on the martial arts. Music by Jack L. Relic. Martial Arts Lifestyle Magazine and the Martial Arts Lifestyle Podcast are trademarked and copyrighted by TNT LLC. Yeah.